Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. I'd like to once again welcome C.K. Westbrook to this podcast. She is author of the Impact series, which is a wonderful and informative trilogy about the state of our planet. C.K. is also an environmentalist who lives and works in Washington, D.C. She has worked with the U.S. Congress in many administrations to try to protect our water, our air, and our wildlife from pollution, abuse, and exploitation. She also says she is an old school news jockey. Because of the state of our environment and bleak and depressing news we hear on a regular basis, CK creates intriguing characters who live in a creative fictional world in order to escape reality. The world these characters live in may also be dark and scary, but they have a fantastic already fantastic adventures which impact their planet. In addition to creating imaginative stories, CK breaks free from daily life with an intense passion for travel and has been to all seven continents. CK grew up in Florida, not far from the Kennedy Space Center, and has a bachelor's degree from the Florida International University and a master's degree from George Washington University. CK loves weaving real world topics and crises into suspenseful sci-fi and fantasy. Okay, welcome back, CK. Thank you for having me, Dr. Messina. Sure. Uh, Can you briefly summarize for our listeners what happened in your first two books? Now, that's three podcasts right there, but just briefly. So that people will know how you got to the judgment, the idea of the judgment, or maybe you had all of this in mind and then just wrote. But I, if you could just fill us in on that process. Sure. So almost all science fiction has some kind of a catastrophic event, which changes everything. In this series, The Shooting, book one, there is a global mass shooting where almost every gun owner in the world turns their weapon on themselves at almost the exact same time. Catastrophic global change. Um, A hero rises up. She has to figure out why it happened, how it could have possibly happened, and then try to prevent future violence. And that's basically the shooting. Um, She partners with some people to try to figure out what's going on. Collision is kind of a quest that she goes on with, with Sinclair to find out why the shooting happened. And again, to try to figure out if they can stop it. And there is a collision, Kessler syndrome, uh, lots of like relevant issues about what's going on with space and the uh, many launches and the the way the space exploration has changed so much in the past 10 years, so it's very relevant. And then they, in the judgment, which is book three, which we're gonna discuss today, they're what caused the collision, how did that trigger the mass shooting? 
all that has to be, you know, figured out. And then in the judgment, it's like, who's judging who and why because of these huge catastrophic events. And um, so that's the basic trend of the three uh, books. Okay. Uh, in the series, the theme of consequences is prevalent. And every choice has one. Can you discuss a few examples? Yes. Uh, right from the beginning, whether or not you had a gun in your home during that 15-minute window, that was a choice. Uh, re re the reasons people have guns in the United States and all over the world are different, but the consequence was what, what happens on July 15th. Um, and then there's other consequences, the irresponsibility with space debris and all the debris that's in the lower Earth orbits and whether or not that triggered the collision, um, decisions and choices regarding all levels of pollution. So yes, and then in, in the judgment, there's a big choice that needs to be made. And there's, of course, consequences, and that's discussed a lot in the judgment. So it's a it's an important theme, actions and consequences in all three books. You know, space debris is really... It's very important. It's very important to know about it. It's very important to do something about it. Could you say just a few words about that? Because I, I, I there are very uh, people, well, a lot of people who really care about the environment, but I've had conversations with them. And when I say something about space debris, they um, are not always sure what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I think I when I've talked to environmentalists about space, they're like, I want to go up, I want to go to Mars. And I start to explain that there's already enormous pollution and consequences to space exploration. And they, it, it's almost like it's too big a problem or something. Cause so it's hard for people to understand what, what, what debris is, is like every time there's been a launch, all the thousands of satellites that have gone up in the, in the last few years, there's launches every single day all around the world. So almost every nation from Scotland and Asia and the EU to India to China to Russia, everyone is doing launches every single day. And there, in the old days, it was exploration and science for the sake of science. And now it's to get the satellites up for, for um, it's getting more and more war threatening, right? We just, Donald Trump created Space Force. So there's, and when these things collide or they malfunction, or you lose a um, a solar panel, or you lose a, um, a tool bag or anything, that just starts floating around in lower Earth orbit at millions of miles per hour. That's probably an exaggeration, but it's super, super, super fast. And it hits something else, and it hits something else. And there are tens of millions, if not billions of pieces of very dangerous debris all over lower Earth orbit. They've already had to move the International Space Station a few times to avoid something even as tiny as, you know, uh, a piece of frozen glass or a you know, frozen drop of water can be a deadly projectile at a million miles per hour. So there's all this stuff. And, and NASA has entire offices trying to monitor the debris, which is basically pollution. I, I, even in the books, I get frustrated with saying debris because it sounds like it's a, it's a, you know, oh, it's a natural consequence of what you're doing. No, it's pollution. It's garbage. You are creating garbage and then you're not cleaning it up and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And then there's other issues with the ozone layer. Every time those, those uh, launches go off, they're damaging the ozone layer, which we have, as, as the world tried to protect the ozone layer in the eighties and nineties and, and address that with chlorofluorocarbons, there is, uh, enormous um, 
black carbon being released, which is contributing to global warming with each of these launches. So, and just now we are finally, the world is waking up to the debris coming back down. Some of it is large enough that it's coming back down. I think there was recently something landed in Australia and there's been threats. And even in America says, oh, well, we do it over the ocean. So it doesn't matter. This stuff's going to slam into the oceans. Well, there are people and, and living things in the oceans. And this, this mindset of the cavalier irresponsibility, just going from, you know, we were when we were in Europe and then we brought these attitudes to the new world and, and then we're now we're taking it to another new world. It's very irresponsible, very selfish. And there are environmental uh, space experts. So it is a field that is emerging. I wish it did not have to. Like, why can't we learn from our mistakes? But um, yeah, and in the books, in Collision, most especially, there's whole pages that, that describe the crisis and the situation. And it's very real world as far as how the world is addressing it. They're not. There is not the technology to address it yet. There's a whole lot of um, prototypes and uh, innovation that's trying to happen. But as usual, the pollution and the 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 the, the, the barn door has been left open. Um, and to try to get the whole world together to address this problem is going to get even harder and harder with more and more debris. And someone's going to get hurt soon. And it's, you know, it's going to take out our satellites and it's a mess. Well, I think that's the key. I think getting world leaders to agree on what we can do. I mean, that's a, a big hurdle. Um, yeah. When Heather White, uh, when I talked to her, and um, we were talking about one particular thing, but she said, we have the technology. What we have to do is get people to agree on how we're going to implement or how we're going to use it. So, I mean, even if we do have it, we have to get people to agree to cooperate, cooperate. And since people aren't cooperating about many things these days, that's a, that's, um, well, that's another major hurdle yes. but i want to have plenty of time to talk about your book so i'll move back to that in the book kate explains what she thinks about the modern billionaire driven space race the kilonova of 2017 uh what was uh, the real was that a real phenomenon or um Yes or no, and um, what did it do if it if it were real? Yes, it was a real phenomenon. Uh, neutron stars collided and created a black hole. I'm not sure if it's the first one that they recorded it happening or not, but it was a big deal when it happened. And there was discussion about whether or not it made a sound. And you know, we always we know space is silent, but there's debate about that. So it was a very big deal. But really, what it did is it released minerals, gold platinum and other uh, priceless minerals to humans and people on earth. So it kind of like, it, 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 I mean, this is just in the story, right? I don't know this for a fact, but it did seem to be the preamble to the space, uh, rich space bros going into space, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk um, to kind of taking over space exploration because all of a sudden, like, you know, you think about it, like, why did the Europeans come to the United States? They were looking for spice. They were looking, I mean, America, North America, they, they were looking for food. They were looking for natural resources. They were looking for labor. You know, they were looking for, and it's kind of the same thing where these priceless, and, and then it became like space was being explored 
for, you know, the noble um, education for the sake of education. And then all of a sudden it came like, oh, we need to get these minerals because then we can make more, you know, um, electric vehicles or cell phones or, oh, and we're going to do tourism and we're going to get on a comet or an asteroid. And all of a sudden it's become about money. And it's, it's it, again, it's that kind of constant conflict because now that there's so much wealthy billionaires invested in space exploration, they donate to the politicians who should be regulating them and making sound decisions to keep things safe and, and uh, healthy and clean. So there we go with that conflict again. But um, I don't factually know if the Kilanova triggered all this. It was just from my research. And I thought this, um, it fit in the story. And I kind of feel like, yeah, there's a, there's a natural um, response that happened after that event. Well, it's a, it seems like a good way of combining fiction and nonfiction. Okay, so moving to a, a different a different place, I think. In the stories, uh, you use characters to represent the different ways people experience grief. Can you talk a little bit about that or discuss a few examples? Sure. The... Um... Some of it is like impacts, like um, there's a character in Collision and in Judgment. It's it's Kate's mother and she kind of goes into her house and she, things get messy and she just shuts down and so does her daughter. And that's kind of one way of handling like, crisis and heartbreak. And I've seen that in my own life. And a lot of these things were just different uh, people and positions I've saw in my life. And then I kind of blended it together into certain characters. Some become very angry. I mean, there's a lot that become mobs and actually take out their violence. They're like, I'm, I'm, I'm heartbroken. I'm in so much pain. Who caused this? I'm going to go and get them, you know, blame shifting or somehow they think that's going to take the pain away. There are others who, um, kind of enmesh themselves in work. You know, they talk about, Oh, I lost my my spouse, I lost my child. I'm going to go to work every day because that's just their way of of coping with crisis. So if you look at the different characters, because everybody in the book has been touched by violence, either directly or indirectly from the from the shooting and how they handle it. Um, you know, even even the women she meets in jail, there's different circumstances. Some people became come reckless, um, and I kind of feel like we're seeing that in the U.S. as I mean, as a response to the pandemic and other issues. People handle stress and heartbreak differently. And I think each, all the characters have little elements of different ways that, that are natural responses. What came to our mind is, as you were speaking is the idea of eco grief and how people are grieving or not the loss of uh, many species. I mean, some people are saddened and they actually feel loss as if they've lost a person. And yeah other people, you know, it's uh, way, it's hidden away someplace or they shove it aside, but we're all affected by that or one would certainly hope we are. So, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would almost say like in this like, kind of like worldwide depression, I feel like uh, the world is in right now is because we deal with war and finances and losing your job and disease and pandemics and and but that's always existed but underneath the ground has been we have food we have water we have ecosystems we have nature to heal us both mentally and physically um so it's kind of like the base has always been there 
And now we are shaking the base, right? And we are literally watching species at the brink of extinction. And like with the fires in Hawaii and the fires in the West and the fires in Canada and the, the first hurricane in California in 20 years or, or 30 years, it, it's making people realize that the base isn't there, right? So it's like, I think that's causing even more anxiety, whether or not people can articulate it or not, that, um, that we are doing some very severe damage. And yeah, I definitely, I am an animal lover. I, I, it breaks my heart what's going on with wildlife and nature. And I think there's a lot of other people that feel, a lot, a lot of people feel the same way I do. Yes, uh, I'm one of them. Okay, um, back to the book. At one point, Kate says she's only going to take people she loves um, so much that she could handle their hate. I really like that phrase. Uh, what does it mean? Or I, I like my interpretation of it. I might not be right. Um, so I was thinking about, I've had experiences with friends and family who have had addiction, drug and alcohol and other things. And we've done interventions, just straight up interventions where you tell them why you love them and what behavior they need to stop. And also have some hard conversations about behavior, choices, shame. And um, when you do those things, people get angry with you, right? So um, they, you kind of have to love somebody enough to know that they might hate you, at least maybe forever, uh, maybe temporarily. And that's what I was kind of thinking about when she, if she was to make a choice for somebody and she chooses wrong, they're going to turn on her. And she was like, I can only do this for people I can handle their hate. And I would say also, like, again, as an environmentalist, and I kind of wish politicians could handle this more, like you need to deliver bad news sometimes to people and they're going to get angry. Right. You know, like I, I run into this one. I was like, hey, you know, eating beef and, and certain other animals contribute 17 percent to global warming from the U.S. So if we were to cut our meat consumption in half, you could we could cut global warming gases to by 8 percent right now today, you know, without needing the government, without needing, you know, fancy cars or expensive solar panels or anything. We could do that today. And then do people get mad when you say that? You know, they'll, <laughs> they get really angry. So I, and I, and I think politicians are afraid to deliver the truth to their constituency because they're going to get angry. So this whole thing was in my mind was like, when you, do, do you love somebody enough to tell them the truth, knowing that they might hate you? And that's a whole other level of like love. Absolutely. It definitely is. Um in the book, you have interesting discussion questions for people who might be in book groups or just for themselves to think about. So I'd like to ask you about some of them. Uh, in the judgment, Kate and St. Clair debate over uh, a moral dilemma. What is that dilemma and whose side would you take? Maybe why? So the, the, the dilemma is who should be making this huge choice for people? Should they be left to, to make it themselves or should Kate make it for them? And it's a big, huge decision. And I, and I, and the way their debate and their conversations um, helps Kate, I think, see different perspectives and come to a different understanding of it than her gut reaction was. Um, so it, and it is a big choice and a big, I mean, would I, would I like, there's two different things. W what decision would you make in the end, which is big in the book. And also who should be making that choice for people. And it's interesting too, because there's also the other side, which sometimes people don't want to make decisions for themselves, right? So um, there's just like a whole lot of like different levels of depth to the to the big 
Um, and they actually get angry with each other at certain points in the book because they're like arguing and debating, which I feel like is also healthy because that helps uh, both of them evolve in their thinking about this this huge responsibility. This would be you can answer this or not. I just want to uh, I just want to mention it as a question because I think it would be great for our discussion group, a book group. Kate takes solitude, strength, and pleasure in nature. What activities bring you peace and or make you feel you're a living life to the fullest? So that, that would be a great question. You can answer it if you'd like, but I can also move on. No, I can totally answer that. I mean, I love hiking. I love totally love being in nature. I live near a park, so I get to go and do runs near near a bubbling creek. Um, I like whale watching. I, I mean, I love anything to do with nature. It's my happy. It's what makes me the happiest. But when I talk to people too, I always say, close your eyes, you know, and just think about it for five minutes or two minutes, depending on how long you have. Think about where your happy place is. I mean, where do you think? And almost everybody goes to nature to a particular hike or, you know, a house on a, on a lake in Maine that they went to as kids. And it's always, almost always, a few say like the mall or something, which is very, <laughs> you know, but it's like, I guess it depends on where you grew up and, and, and what decade, but, um, and, and then say like, do you value that enough to want to save it? You know, like what, like when we talk about going to space and we're talking about wasting all this money, using all this money and causing all this pollution to like get someplace good that doesn't have whales and doesn't have squirrels and doesn't have lakes in Maine with loons and doesn't have like, so remember this, you know, like, like, Tap into what you think is very important, then decide if you're going to protect it. Because if you, we need, if we don't, it's going to disappear. Yeah, good point. Uh, there's another concept you have that I like. People often judge themselves by their intentions, but judge others by their actions. Do you say a little bit about that, or maybe give a few examples if you recall them? Sure. Um... In the book, a lot of this debate is around guns, right? So it's like your intention. My intention was to have the gun to provide safety or or to intimidate others or to hunt or whatever. And then the the reality of what happens with the guns and people's intentions, like even in society, you might intend for your gun to provide you with safety, but someone steals it or you you know, leave it out and your dog steps on it or your child gets a hold of it. So there's like intentions and consequences and like, you know, and even like with the environment, you know, I, you might, I might say, okay, I don't eat meat and I, and I, and I drive a hybrid and I have solar panels and I'm not going to use single use plastic, but then I'll do something like go buy makeup or go buy something that I know is full of chemicals and, and bad for the environment or upgrade a new phone. And I feel horrible about it. I mean, I'm glad they're recycling that. So we, we judge ourselves like, oh, I'm a good environmentalist. But then sometimes we'll look at other people <laughs> and say, you're not doing anything. You know, and in the book, at one point, you know, Kate says the rich blame the poor, the poor blame the rich and the middle class act like they're like these victims of the both and innocent. And it's kind of like we all contribute to the problem but it's really easy to like just and I and I know even in with environmental, someone's gonna say, do you know that the top 20 richest people in America contribute 30%? I'm not sure that percentage, but it's significant to global warming. Whereas the you know, the lower income levels contribute the least. So there's a lot of blame shifting and um um conscious and subconscious 
and it happens all the time. So, and I just feel like we're all like, I'm intending to be a good person. I'm intending to be a good environmentalist, but really what we do sometimes is, is way more damaging than we think. That's a very good point. Well, I have a question, a philosophical question. I guess it's a, a psychological one too. Do you think people are capable of real meaningful change? I want to hear your opinion of this because I was like, I wrestle with this. I like for my own personal self, I'm like, oh yeah, I've changed. So if I can change, other people can change. But then I really thought about it and said, but did I really change? Or were those like little core parts of my personality or character that were already there and they just kind of evolved with age? Or is it real change? I mean, that's the hard thing too, is like, what is real change? And then, oh my God, I we need to change. People need to change. And we are on this you know, path to self-destruction. So I have to believe that we can change, but then sometimes I get very frustrated and, you know, I'll talk to um, people and they'll say, there's no way people do not. So I, I mean, it's, it's that's a, a question for the ages, but you are a professional in this arena. So I would be more, far more intrigued to hear your answer. I think people don't change. I think whatever people think about Freud, he was really right about the repetition compulsion that we are sort of compelled to repeat, but it's re repeating what we know. So unless we get new information or we really learn something that's different, I think we we do the same old, same old things. I mean, how many people do things the way their mothers did them or their fathers did them? Because that's the script they learn. It's like, I often tell patients, it's like watching a, a YouTube video for 18 years. That's what you see, this dynamic. So when people say, well, he's marrying somebody like his mother or she's marrying somebody like her father, well, that's the father. That's what she knows about being a man or he knows about being a woman. I think if people really come to know themselves and want to change, they can. I see that all the time. So it, it has to do with one's motivation, I think. That's a major key factor. Yeah, and I would build on that, like in the in the, the kind of the reckoning that society's had with like Jedi justice equity that's been happening for the past few years because of the police violence, and you you, you know I, we're told like people say, well, I do this because my father did it and my grandfather did, it, my great grandfather did, it, so I'm not going to do it. And like, well, they might have all been racist and misogynist, so this is the conversation we're having. Just because they did it doesn't mean it was right. So I do feel like in that sense, people are, some people are going, oh my gosh, you know, I have been doing this as a repetitive cycle without, without really thinking about it. So maybe this is like an awakening time on some fronts or some people just are pulling back way harsher, you know, like um, Governor DeSantis and there's like, so there's this backlash of um, intolerance and hate. So it's just like an interesting time where oh, I wish people could change and I wish they would feel happy about it and and that we could all embrace it and that we, that would be nice and on so many fronts. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Okay, back to the impact series. Um, you discuss many forms of pollution. Can you name a few? Uh, do you think any are more dangerous than the others? Okay, so the big one is, as we discussed, debris, garbage in space for the story, right? Because of the collision and that it that the actions in space impacted and created the shooting. So then you have um, 
all the other side pollutions, which is, you know, global warming and biodiversity extinction crisis and water pollution and air pollution. And then this is as an environmentalist, like one in, I always forget if it's one in six or one in nine. I tend to flip my number sometimes. It's one in six. I was right. So one in six people in the world dies from pollution. Um, and that's air pollution, water pollution, and chemical pollution. It kills more people than war, terrorism, malaria, which is a huge killer. It is so deadly. And yet we really focus on things in our society that are like, I mean, in a certain sense, like car accidents or, you know, possibly somebody breaking into your house so you need a gun. And it's like pollution is so deadly all over the world. And we discussed before cumulative impact. So like, let's say you worked at Camp Lejeune and your drinking water was poisoned by one chemical. They're like, oh, it was just five or 10 years. But then there was a second chemical. And if you were pregnant and then there was a third chemical. So there's these things like, and then you've got cancer. Um, so I wish we treated pollution as the deadly thing that it is and took it very seriously to, to reduce it. And then I would add one thing too, like, that the, there was a piece of pollution that is extremely tiny that triggered all this, right? That basically killed 70 million Americans and hundreds of millions worldwide. And if you think about it, it was just one tiny little piece of pollution that just caused this cat catastrophe. And, it, and we could apply that almost to global warming or climate change or the extinction crisis. Like one little thing is going to be the one that just sets off catastrophic change for the planet. And, and, I wish people took pollution more seriously than they do. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, that, that's useful. Um, what characters, back to the book, what characters do you like most at least in the judgment? They're, these are your characters, but uh, what do you think? Um, um, of course, I love Kate. <laughs> and Sinclair, and I like Kyle, and like everybody has their their humans, right? Or their characters, um, but I love charisma. I love that there's a series of women, if you read in the book, that just kind of stand up and kind of become Kate's helpers in different ways. So I love, I love all the women characters, but I love Sinclair. Um, the characters I don't like are clearly the government um, and on all different levels, like police, um, Space Force, um, the mayor of DC, because they see a problem and they default back, like we were saying, not changing, to I'm going to control the situation. I'm going to use my power to intimidate and fear and get the response I need because that's how the government functions instead of like backing up and like talking and getting exposed to different kinds of information. So I'd say most of the bad guys are, of course, in Rex. Um, our, our government and, and also the people that hold the power and seem to be more like obsessed with using the power than all the other characters who I like. <laughs> um, so there's obviously abuse of power in this story. Um, I guess that's pretty obvious. Um, I like the, the way you dealt with a range of feminism, um, political, economic, personal social equity of the sexes. Um, how about its relationship to gun violence? Because that obviously was a major part of the trilogy. Right. So, you know, one main character who's, is had the gun because she wanted to be safe. Other characters um, for hunting. And, and I think like 
there's one woman and she like loses her son and her and her family and she has a different perspective then there's the there's the women in jail who have different perspectives of gun violence and they almost everybody in the book has been touched either directly or indirectly by the gun violence by the shooting and there is you know i think it intertwines with feminism because it's well first of all in the book clearly more men died than women so a lot of the the, the the women are left and they're discussing like who they lost and why they lost and how they're reacting to it. So that innately is just kind of feminist. And then there's also, of course, Kate's backstory when she was young and how she was treated when she was in an incident with guns when she was very young. Um, so I feel like the feminist component is brought out by explaining how the different women address their loss and their relationship with guns and like men do as well. But like I said, more men died than women. Yeah. Well, if you think about it historically, women have often been left holding the bag, so to speak. Um, right. Cause war, you know, people just grab their guns and run out and start shooting each other. And you're like, yes. And it happens constantly. Yeah. I feel like we can't in the United States, we can't not be at a war, you know, it's like, it's like a compulsion. Yeah. Um, you have uh, a very, well, I think all of your discussion questions are interesting, but this one particularly struck me, another age-old question. Is it possible to live a normal life and not ever to lie? Um, <laughs> I close my eyes and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I want a world where everybody don't lie, be kind be considerate, think of the consequences. And I'm like, why not try it? Like, I mean, I wish the world could just get together. Like, We've never tried this before. Let's just try it for one year and see if it works, right? Because um, that would just be so awesome and we would solve so many more problems. Um, do I really think it can happen? <laughs> I, I know, I feel like people like to be lied to, right? It's like they, I mean, clearly with President Trump and what is his 91 indictments and it's just crazy how how much our society actually seems to respect lying and liars and cruelty, but we claim we don't. So I wish we had that world. Um, I think that's part of the book was like, I think it was like a little mixing of like, in a perfect world, what would I want? And, um, and some of that comes out in the book. You know, I wish like crazy we could have that world. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I've, um, I just edited a book and one of the chapters is about uh, lie, lying and how important it is for democracy to lean towards the truth at least to try to to try to go in that direction and uh, I did just research on presidents and presidents lie to the American people it's not I mean obviously they're recent ones uh, but we've been lied to and it's um, it's interesting when you said people, did you say people like to be lied to? Uh, it's, it's amazing how people certainly have tolerated it. This is, so the, the chapter is why the truth is essential in a democracy, democracy pivoting towards evidence. It's important, but, uh, Yeah. But I would, I would add, like, it's, I think, too, when people, like, I don't mean to say that they like it, but, okay, let's say the Supreme Court. Some people in the Supreme Court have taken an enormous amount of bribes, and it's undermining completely our faith 
and judges, right? So this is another element of, of democracy that's being totally undermined. It's not just a Congress and Senate where we're like, oh, they're all liars. They just want to get elected or presidents. But it's really undermining the core principles of our democracy. And then the minute, instead of people saying, well, that person's a liar and they should be removed from that job right away, bam, let's go get another one. It'll be fine. There's plenty of other people in America that would serve very well on the Supreme Court. They decide that they're going to pull back and then they lie. You know, like, it's just like, oh, we're all liars and I'm going to get mine. And so it's not necessarily that they want to be lied to. I think it, it, it allows them to be a worse person or more base about things. And then they are happier doing that because then they don't have to feel shame or they don't have to take responsibility. Like we're all liars, right? It's just, and it's very unfortunate because it is destroying democracy. Yeah. That's what hit me in terms of this, this chapter that I wrote in this, in this book. Um, now in, in your book, there's a pledge, or I guess it's in the, it's a trilogy. It's, it's peppered throughout the, the pledge, uh, although it's mentioned more in one book, but would you sign the pledge? Um, it's so weird. Like some days I'm like, yeah, I would. And then some days I'm like, no, I wouldn't. I feel like that's a very difficult decision. And I hope that I relayed that in the book that it is a really difficult decision um, you know, I just default back to, do I want to live in a world without dogs and cats? You know, <laughs> I want to live in a world without plants. Um, but then at the same time, it's not like you get to live there. It's, I, I, I just loved like that to me, the whole pledge is like the same thing with global warming and choices, you know, like that's their sacrifice and that you have to value something enough to love it. And what if people were to take it all away from you? So I just hope that people like think about all these things. I don't know if I would sign the pledge. Do you think you would sign the pledge? I'm not sure either. I kind of feel the way you do. I mean, yes, on one hand, but no on another. <laughs> and without saying exactly explicitly what the pledge is. It, <laughs> um, people need to read the book. It's an intriguing oh, concept, I think. <laughs> I really hope people read these books. They are excellent. I... As I've said before, I read nonfiction most often, but I couldn't put uh, I couldn't put the the first one down. Then I had to get the second. I had to read them all. So there, it's it's a riveting series. So thank you once again for joining me for a podcast. What are you working on now? I finished. Um, the Aftermath, which is a book that takes five years, placed five years after the shooting. So it's got different characters and kind of a different twist. I handed that over to my publisher and we are now in that back and forth period of editing and picking a, a cover. And, and it, there, I don't have a publication date, but we're aiming for April 2024. So that's coming up fast. Um, and I hope people love the series and will enjoy the judgment. Because I keep saying like, what do you think the world's going to be like after all of this? And that's kind of like the book is a little bit about that. And I have a website, www.ckwestbrook.com. And I list all the different phases. And as soon as the book's going to be available for pre-sale and all that information will be there. So if people want to check that out. And also there's a, a bunch of information about this series and places I'll be speaking and where I'll be doing book signings. So if anyone wants to uh, look at that information, it's on the website. Oh, and I would say too, I'm on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Twitter, X, all the social medias under CK Westbrook or ckwestbrook.author, depending on 
which uh, social media platform? Well, again, thank you so much. And we'll be uh, looking forward to, I certainly will be, uh, the aftermath. Is it the aftermath or just aftermath? The aftermath. Make it consistent with the series. (laughs) Okay. Well, until then, um, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for having me. I super appreciate it.